Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're continuing our watch through of The Magician Season 3, looking at Episode 3, The Losses of Magic. Britt, why don't you start us off with a recap? The episode starts with Alice grabbing a kitten to help with early lamprey detection. Oh, kitty. This one gets away, though. Yes. So far better than the last episode. But then goes to her parents' house. Her parents and family friend Carol aren't doing great in the post-magic world, but lamprey-laden Quentin shows up and everyone is swept up in precautions, including electrocuting anyone they think the lamprey is in. In the midst of... The dysfunction and heart-to-hearts, Alice reveals that she tortured tons of magical creatures when she was a Niffin, including the Lamprey's whole family. She finally kills it after it leaves her father, but her father's heart couldn't handle electrocution, and he dies as well. Back in Fillory, the Muntjac is commandeered by pirates, but luckily Elliot, Fenn, and Frey are able to escape when their golden key creates a magical door. However, upon hearing reports of the pirates, Margot convinces the fairy queen to fly them to the Muntjac, where Margot tries to make a deal with the pirate king. When one of the terms of the deal is to let the pirate ship essentially rape the Muntjac, Margot asks the boat what it would like to do. Seeing this, the fairy queen kills the pirates and says Margot is finally acting like a queen. Back on Earth, Katie is trying to summon a demon, Azeroth, to save Penny's life, and Julie decides to help despite the risks. Thankfully, Azeroth is a pretty friendly demon that removes a large tumor from Penny. Unfortunately, it was all too late, and the episode ends with Penny's astral projection looking at his own dead body and saying, Shit. Aw, Penny. (laughs) Penny! Yeah, we have a death of Penny, the main character. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's get into our magic moments. What magic moments did you have this episode? Well, I like Elliot returning to his more diplomatic, less violent ways Mm -hmm. when the pirates first come on board and... He's like, are we totally sure talking to them won't work? And so that's his inclination. Can't we just discuss things? And then also, it's funny because Frey's like, is father a coward? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. he's just like, father is a survivor. Which, yes. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Also, I think it's a really nice, even though over really sad circumstances, the moment between Katie and Julia Mm. when Julia agrees to help, (laughs) even though this is summoning a demon. And and Katie says, I would love to be more cautious, but Penny is going to die. And, And I think, like, it's a huge deal for Julia, considering everything that happened to her because of Reynard. It's also a big deal for Katie because... Katie had trauma from Reynard as well Mm -hmm. and only wasn't killed because of Julia. And so, yeah, I mean, the uncertainty of what is going to happen after they do the spell is really 
intense and frightening yet now this time they know full well the decision that they're making and why Mm. they're making the decision rather than before they were duped into this summoning you know Mm -hmm. and so here it's they don't know what azeroth is going to be like but but they know he's a demon. They know he's a demon. So they know that they're summoning something that's dangerous and possibly evil, bad. You yeah. Know, like they're coming in with more of that intention. Yeah. Yeah. They have more information. So they're able to make these decisions, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, is it the right decision to make considering if this demon could be like Reynard, mm-hmm. then you're bringing that to earth right and Um, if this is one of the last bits of magic on earth mm -hmm. saving one person by summoning a demon you know is that the best use of it because then you won't even have any magic to try to get rid of it if it's bad exactly yeah Uh, so yeah i mean maybe they've read up a little bit on Azeroth, you know. Well, they summon the wrong Azeroth. Well, that too. (laughs) They summon his cousin, who's not a Duke of Hell, (laughs) just likes to eat tumors. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, yeah, but I just think it's a a nice moment of support between them two, even if maybe I wouldn't say that they're making the right decision, Mm -hmm. but also Penny. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I understand this early. Difficult circumstance. Absolutely. Also, we have to mention Tick Pickwick saying, if you would allow me to mansplain, your highness. One of the best lines (laughs) in all of television history. (laughs) So good. very good. (laughs) Very amusing. Mm -hmm. But what about you? What are some of the magic moments you were thinking about? Some of the visuals in this episode were really standout. Mm. The filming on the ocean, I think, looked really great. You know, the scenes of the Muntjac when there really was just completely ocean around them. You know, mm. it felt very much like they were in the middle of the ocean. On the other hand, the lamprey under Quentin's skin looked so gross <laughs> that I, I just went between like being like, oh, that's visually impressive. And oh, I never want to see that again. So, yeah, some good visual design, I guess. Effective visual design in this episode. Yeah, it that didn't bother me that much. But, you know, things under your skin. No, thank you. I don't like that. <laughs> I mean, I would hate it in real life. But, but I can't see it without imagining like th- what it would feel like. Mm. And that just, no. Like, more gruesome things, I can't even begin to think about or imagine what it would be like to like get stabbed or shot or get your hand cut off or something like that. But like something moving under your skin, I feel like I can imagine that and be more grossed out by it. That's so funny because you've cut yourself with a knife, so you should have a better idea of what it would be like to be stabbed. <laughs> yeah, but those that's like a stinging sensation, not like a you've been gutted situation. I mean, it depends how stabbed we're talking about. <laughs> well, I've never gutted myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one good choice you've made. <laughs> the only one. Uh, I also just love... When Penny is dying and talking to Katie and he just can't stop himself from flirting, even when he's dying, like he leans in for the kiss and starts to cough up blood, you know, just like Penny is, is just Penny to the end. Mm -hmm. And then the last couple fun lines, the pirate king 
says to Margot that she never could control herself around a one-eyed girl. And Margot mm-hmm. just responds with, we've all got a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Alice's mom saying, I'm not peeing in front of your father to Alice <laughs> because mystery is not something you can take back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea that she'd be fine peeing in front of Alice or Quentin. I know, Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, the one I'd be like, oh, exactly. I don't know this person. This is awkward. <laughs> uh, it's just such a good like insight into her character and her priorities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and then, of course, we get an image of Benedict as High King Elliot, which is <laughs> delightful. <laughs> it is I, <laughs> High King Elliot. Your High King oh, yeah. Elliot. Yes. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> But let's move into our setting in society. So what did you bring to discuss? So more examples of how magicians are just screwing up the world for other people. (laughs) So the Quinn's friend, Carol, who had used illusion magic to look thin. Mm -hmm. Further perpetuation of unrealistic beauty standards here through magic versus through having enough money and expendable time and ability to exercise for a couple hours a day or, you know, whatever it is, or have a private chef or, you know, whatever the situation is. And then... That they got a tax bill for the first time in decades. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Oh, Just like, we're not paying taxes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and that's almost like a Schitt's Creek kind of thing of like, you know, (laughs) they have power and living without that power just makes them have to deal with things that they've never had to deal with in the past. And there are plenty of people who are millionaires and billionaires out there who Mm -hmm. also are not paying their taxes on that wealth, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think here it's, you know, obviously good world building, but it also has this really clear parallel. (laughs) So frustrating. (laughs) I'd be like, Hmm, maybe we shouldn't bring magic back. (laughs) Unless you can use magic to make people pay their taxes. (laughs) Anyways, uh, another thing that I think is just interesting as part of the setting of Fillory is that the islands don't like to be mapped, so they move. I know. Wow, that's such a great line. Yeah, it's it's such a great So evocative. It's particularly interesting because they say that maps outside of Fillory's territorial waters don't like to be mapped, Mm -hmm. which makes it sound like maps within Fillory's territorial waters are fine being mapped. And so not only that islands have sentience and a mind of their own and the ability to be mapped or not mapped, but that some of them do accede to some jurisdiction or sovereignty of Fillory that they've been claimed by Fillory. And so that makes them change their behavior is just, yeah, so, so interesting to me in how that works out, what the agency of these islands is, to what extent are they colonized? Are they forced to stay in one place or are they so magical that they're not sentient? They just act these ways unless they are touched by 
these kinds of mythical or or systemic changes? I don't know. I just so many unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. Totally. And then also in general, enjoying the demon Nazroth. Mm. Him calling what he does surgery is very interesting. Yeah. That's, that's not exactly what I would call surgery. <laughs> but um, it did get the job done. Yeah, and, and that's another demon. We talked about this term when we met the Keiko demons. Mm-hmm. How demon has so many religious connotations in our society. And so what does that mean for this society? You know, they, they refer to him before they realize they have the wrong Azeroth as the Lord of the Seventh Circle and, you know, of the, I think, of the Inferno. So it's like, okay, is that specifically looking at, like, a Christian style of hell? Like, where do demons live? Is this, you know, what is this Inferno? Again, just uh, in a world that we know they have gods, and we know that, for example, the Greek gods exist. Mm-hmm. Demons also exist. What does that look like? How do, you know, are these from different worlds? You know, all of that is interesting. Yeah, and I I find it interesting, too, that he is not looking for praise Mm -hmm. or worship or reverence. He's like, you can stand. This kneeling is weird. (laughs) And also, he's clearly familiar with American culture Mm -hmm. (laughs) when uh, he looks to Penny, who's astrally projected, no shame, bro. You know, <laughs> calling him like, bro. Exactly. I'm just like, who are you, Azeroth? <laughs> Can you join the main cast? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing is that he does also. I mean, this is a guest star role. You know, he's only in this one episode, I imagine. But he has a like very sincere performance of feeling sad for Penny's death. Mm-hmm. feeling that he wishes that he could have done more, you know, not just being like, well, I got what I wanted and I'm just going to go, but actually, you know, yeah, having clear sympathy and empathy for the people around him. Yeah, I mean, maybe it'd be a good thing to have someone around that liked eating tumors that, you know, with the consent of the people. Of course. And then, you know, heal them afterwards, which he healed up the wounds, mm-hmm. he closed those would probably help a lot of people out. Absolutely. Unlike these gods who don't seem to be doing anything. <laughs> right? Demons are way more helpful in this world. Right? They're uh, working for their tumor dinners. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but what about you? Yeah, I-, I had obviously very similar thoughts. I also thought it was interesting how Penny's psychic powers left him when magic went out, but his traveling did not. Mm-hmm. You know, what does, again, that say about which of those are tied to what forms of magic that one stays with him and one does not? It's interesting. Yeah. They don't necessarily follow along with that always, mm-hmm. I think. But I noticed that this time when he said that, I was like, huh. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it could just be a miswriting, you know, kind of mm-hmm. loophole. But, uh now he's dead. <laughs> so I imagine they won't explore it. 
He's astrally projected, okay? <laughs> That's, true. That's true. If he was dead, you'd be real upset. That's true. Yeah, I wouldn't I mean, be flippantly making this, these yeah, jokes. Yeah, no. We'd all be upset. <laughs> but I also want to talk about pirates. I assumed you would. Yeah, so the Muntjac is taken over by pirates in this episode. Which is cute because it's called a deer class vessel, mm. and a muntjac is a type of deer. Oh, that's cool. I know. That's great. Cute. And Frey, you know, makes just kind of a funny joke, but also one that I think is interesting with piracy because she asks, are they allowed to just kill us and steal from us? <laughs> because piracy, historically, the answer has been sometimes, <laughs> you know, or allowed by who? Because in, you know, the golden age of piracy in the 17th century, 18th century, when especially there's lots of piracy in places like the Caribbean, the Americas and Southeast Asia, many of those pirates were once privateers. And privateering is essentially piracy when you have the approval of a nation state. <laughs> when you are working as a pirate for the British, or for the Dutch, or for the Spanish, against the other European states. When Europeans want to steal from each other and pay people to do it. Exactly, right? Yeah. Uh, then you're a privateer. And in fact, many pirates were people who were once in navies or worked as privateers, but then had that designation stripped from them once the political realities changed. And... You know, England now signed a truce with France, and so they didn't want to be at war. So they said, oh, well, now all these people who are doing this action, now we condemn them, even though they've been paying them a month earlier. And so this crew that has been together has been, you know, doing this on behalf of the English in many ways, now oftentimes will just keep doing it for themselves now. And so, yeah, I think that there that, that was an interesting question that kind of sparked that for me. And especially with, you know, we hear that they're flying the red bones, uh, <laughs> which means in this case, no quarter given, though that's not true. Yeah, when Margot comes onto the crew, they do parlay. They do have negotiations. They have things that they are willing to trade. And that is also something that actually happened with pirates a lot. For many pirate crews, the point of their attacks was to avoid a fight as much as possible. And so, for example, pirate crews tended to be massive crews of people, huge numbers of people, not only to do all the different things that are needed on a pirate vessel, like manning the guns and being able to board, be a boarding party and everything else, but also because when they pulled up against a merchant vessel, which was typically running on as few people as possible to make as much profit as they possibly could... You know, a dozen merchants on this vessel and their soul and, and their guards would be facing 30, 40 pirates. So the pirates just have to pull up and be like, hey, let's negotiate so that we don't have to fight because pirates don't want to die either. Right. They, they just want to take stuff <laughs> and sinking a ship which is possible if you're having actual, like, naval battles between ships uh, isn't good. Putting yourself at risk to possibly dying isn't good. So, you know, one of the reasons also why pirates took on such scary and ridiculous clothing was to be more intimidating, to make people less likely to actually try to fight them. Obviously, this crew doesn't entirely work that way, <laughs> but I think that the negotiation between Margot and the Pirate King is very interesting in how the ideal deal for the pirate king would be for them to 
move on after they get what they want. Mm -hmm. Uh, And not to just take that from Margot and her retinue. Yeah. And there's, like, the gender-bendingness of piracy as well. Yeah, so important, right? Really cool seeing a femme-presenting pirate king because pirate crews also had a very long history of that, you know? One of the terms that kids of all ages use when they talk like pirates, you know, calling people mateys, that was literally, you're a matey when you are mated with another person on deck, often another man. You know, this is a form of pirate marriage, essentially, saying that, okay, if you die, your matey will get your share of the goods of that, and maybe even other kinds of privileges that come with being the partner for this person. You know, mateys was a really important social contract in the pirate world, not just like a term that you use to say for your your mates, your front, your friends, but like to be a matey was an important thing. So yeah, ideas of gender and sexuality on pirate vessels were certainly not progressive, but could be fluid in some circumstances in ways that weren't available to people who were living, especially in areas that still had a great deal of religious and conservative power (laughs) on land. So yeah, seeing pirates was fun. Also very interesting for the first pirate they talked to to just say, most pirates have made fairy deals at one time or another, (laughs) so they can just see fairies. That, again, is just one of those lines that's just like really great world building in Fillory, along with like the, the... islands don't like to be mapped kind of lines. These lines that just are there for kind of a quick punchline, but also open up so much of this world to think about and explore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But let's move into our next section. So this is themes and schemes, but if I understand correctly, you actually don't have anything this week, correct? Yeah, I didn't write anything down, but I also wrote too many things down for from another point of view. So... We'll just go with your themes and schemes, and I'll do a little, a little more for our point of view. That's fine, yeah. And I, I didn't have much here either. One was just kind of a add-on from last week when I mentioned how the Tale of the Seven Keys started with this child who was a disappointment to their parent because they weren't a boy. And last episode, we saw the disappointment with Frey as the child question mark of Elliot and Fenn. This episode is so centered around Alice as Mm. a disappointing child to her parents as well. So it does make me wonder if, even though we we don't get any movement in the Tale of Seven Keys in this episode, if that is supposed to be a theme that they're trying to explore in this season in a really concentrated way, or if it just happens to be two episodes in a row that kind of deal with it. But yeah, it was just another kind of, after last week's conversation, I was just like, ah, I wonder if this is happening. Mm -hmm. The other one that that I did want to touch on, though, which has both something thematic and lots of scheming, is kind of the idea of what it means to be a queen that we see between Margot and the fairy queen in this episode. Margot convinces the fairy queen to help them get to the Muntjac, essentially by saying, look, if you want us to be an effective tool for you. We have to be able to be effective. And right now that is in danger. And so she used this kind of logic to convince the queen, okay, I need to be able to have actual authority behind my title, which then 
I think is interesting in comparison with the end of the episode where the queen, the fairy queen tells Margot that this is what she wanted. She wanted her to act like a queen. And part of that is being authoritative and, and forthright. But part of that also seems to be being compassionate or trying to do good for those who you are the queen of, those who you rule over. Margot had authority, the ability to force the Muntjac to be raped, but instead she asked the Muntjac what to do, and that seemed to impress the queen. And so I think there's some interesting ideas here of, yeah, what it means to be a queen, what the fairy queen wants from Margot in being a queen, and yeah, just these different ideas of how to be effective as a ruler. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But let's go into our From Another Point of View section. So what perspectives did you want to discuss? So a kind of shorter one is Penny. Mm. Because, yeah, I mean, there's that line about everything being quiet on the psychic front. That's, as he says, the nice thing about losing magic. Him finally getting some relief from that, mm. which he hasn't had very much of. I mean... More so with break bills than certainly before, but then Quentin's always there leaking, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Martin could just force his way in, or, you know, it's just, it's caused him a lot of grief. And even though he's like, okay, magic is gone, there's nothing that can be done for me. But, yeah, it has this little side benefit. But then, of course, there is something now that can be done for him. Mm-hmm. Which he, being very penny, <laughs> is like, there's a lot of magic in that battery. Are you sure you want to waste it on me? Mm. And, like, that's how he phrases it. But... He's not doing it in, like, a, oh, feel sorry for me way, yeah. you know? He says, you don't owe me anything. Mm-hmm. He wants her, if she's going to make this decision, not to make it out of guilt. Or obligation. hmm Yeah. You know, he already signed that contract with the library a while ago, and he made these different decisions, and... He's never taken up very much space (laughs) in any circumstance. Mainly just like, let's just get the things done, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Everyone else is, you know, right before they're going into Fillory, he's like, why do you all look like you did a crime last night? (laughs) Like, what is going on? He's just like trying to not be killed or just trying to help Katie or trying to... Yeah, get rid of the rapist monster. You know, like, he's he doesn't take up a lot of space for himself. And I think this is just another aspect of that. Even mm-hmm. in his death, he is not asking to take up space. Which I think is, I mean, sad in a way. Yeah. But also, in comparison to other characters who sometimes take up a lot of space with their own things... Uh, and they're not even dying, you know. Uh, I think it just shows how, even though he can be 
emotionally immature in the sense of being so guarded and not wanting to be vulnerable and all of that in other ways he also doesn't need the attention he doesn't need Mm -hmm. the narrative around him he doesn't need these other things he has accepted his sad fate probably long ago and acts accordingly Mm -hmm. and of all people he actually helped mayakovsky store magic in this patterns right true (laughs) but he's like magic is gone you could use it for all sorts of things is this what you want to do but then when she says that she does this smile on his face like you can see that it makes him so happy that she does care about him that Mm -hmm. much that she wants to use the last magic in maybe the universe that they have access to so yeah it was just a really sweet moment but then also i think the moment soon after that where he is in so much pain that he jumps out of his body to get away from it just thinking about that idea and if i mean it's great if you have that ability right Mm -hmm. yet he automatically feels embarrassed ashamed uh even to the demon who can see him he's like just save it, okay? You'd actually project too, right? So the, his assumption is that this person is going to judge him yeah. because he's not just taking the pain yeah. and powering through and being a man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the. Showing his grit. Right? <laughs> and like. As we've seen from Penny over the past season, two seasons, like, he is affected by things. He is sensitive. He does care, but he has built up those walls. And so even when who cares? Like, you're undergoing this supposed (laughs) surgery and you're dying, (laughs) Why does it matter what this person thinks of you? Mm-hmm. But it does, which I think probably, to me, would portray a idea that he's probably been made fun of or, you know, had bullies, you know, different people in his life growing up that made this be his automatic reaction of what people would be thinking of him. And so... I mean, well, I mean, not, not you don't even necessarily have to have it directly happen to you, but, like, we all know that these are the types of ideas that exist in yeah. society. Yeah. When you're talking about that conversation between Penny and Katie, I think it's really interesting to think about that in conversation with their scene when he says, you don't get to choose how people take want to take care of you or you don't get to choose how people lo- who loves you right and mm-hmm. she's angry with him for joining the library and signing away himself for a million years and, and all these other kinds of things and so here we see him say some of the same kinds of things of you know you don't have to do this for me um but he's definitely not as aggressive as katie was to him and he is accepting of her when she chooses to do it you know you mentioned the smile on his face like he does yeah clearly take pleasure from it but he also doesn't keep fighting about it he accepts that this is her choice 
this is what she wants to do, and he's just grateful that she's doing it for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, which shows, yeah, so much of the maturity and compassion that Penny has for the people around him. Definitely. Another person that I was thinking about this episode, I thought it would be good to revisit Stephanie Quinn. Oh, yeah. Uh, since I had chosen her previously. Yeah, I was just, I mean, <laughs> she does some wrong things. Why are you trying to kiss your daughter's ex-boyfriend? Yes, she did confirm more than once that they are broken up, but it doesn't matter. That's just done now. No, it's <laughs> no, 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 no. It goes no. both ways. Josh Groban sang about this in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hook up with your parents or child's ex, <laughs> or your ex's parent or child. Yeah. Those relationships are not good. No, 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 no. Uh, so obviously, problems and dysfunction and whatnot. So not ignoring that but also seeing some of what she's actually going through after having to grieve yet another child, your only surviving child. Then when they're brought back, Quentin calls you to tell you. And it's been over two months. Probably longer than that. Yeah, at the very least, right? Your kid doesn't even care about telling you that they're alive i can't imagine even with strained relationships that i've had with family members i can't imagine oh i've been brought back from being dead and not letting them know even in like the worst times of some of those relationships Mm -hmm. (laughs) so to feel like your daughter's been brought back but is there really much of a difference? She's still not in your life because she doesn't want to be. And maybe that is the difference and that makes it even harder. That Mm -hmm. her being dead isn't her not being in your life by choice. Mm -hmm. This is. Yeah. And so there's that. And then when she does show up, yet again, she wants something from you. Mm -hmm. And then she electrocutes your friend who's depressed which is obviously horrible. Everything, the life that you've led, even though it's been unethical, (laughs) has crumbled around you. And you're a middle-aged woman who has no discernible skills anymore. That's what she says. What am I supposed to do? Get a job? I don't know how to do anything because magic has taken care of that. And magic is gone. And so the only thing that she has been, she can't be. And so, yeah, where is she supposed to get a job as a middle-aged woman with no work history? No. <laughs> no degree that's worth anything? I mean, maybe you could still put it down, but you're there. it's not going to come up on Google, right? And so, yeah, it's just like... I feel compassion for the stress and sadness and hopelessness that probably feels like her situation as well as her relationship with her daughter. And then because of what your daughter did as a Niffin and because of her bringing that 
to your home. Your husband now is dead. Mm-hmm. The look that she gives Alice at the end of that that part of the episode is just like... You can just feel how angry she is. How upset. And I could imagine that she would feel like, I wish she had never been brought back. Yeah. And at the same time, probably even before this, for the past two plus months, there's probably been a lot of contention between her and her husband because they don't deal with things the same way. Mm-hmm. They can't even have the same perspective. Like, he gives Alice a hug and says, I knew that you would come see us when you were ready. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's his perspective that she just wasn't ready. And, of course, it's not that she doesn't care about us. She just needed to take the time. You know, so he thinks the best of his daughter in a way that's not even true, right? I don't Mm -hmm. think that that's at all what it was. And then Stephanie is just like, she just doesn't care about us and our feelings at all and and our process of grief, you know? And so I can imagine even the past couple months being contentious, also in the midst of their lives falling apart and... Then he dies, and there's no more time to get to a better place, to get through it together, to anything. And she's left alone because she knows her daughter's not going to help her. Mm -hmm. And so she's a widow with no skills, experience, and family. Yeah. And maybe friend. (laughs) Yeah, her... Her despair in this episode is really powerful. You know, when she's talking to Quentin and says that she thinks sometimes that her son who died had it right, that Mm -hmm. he was lucky. You know, that is very dark. Shows that she's in a very low place. Yeah. And she's obviously drinking her own feelings Mm -hmm. and, you know, not coping with that very well either. But... Yeah, this is just a uh, a really, really awful time for her. And that's that's hard. Absolutely. And then the last person I want to talk about is Margot. Mm. Because I think Margot, this is when she's really starting to, like, grow and, like, come into her own more. Yeah. And the episode starts and she's just so Stressed, trying to deal with everything in Castle White Spire while the fairies are breathing down her neck, while Elliot's been gone to try to get this key. And then in the midst of that, she hears that Elliot's ship was boarded by pirates. Mm -hmm. And she can't even get there quickly, even if the likelihood is that he's dead. To get that news when you're already so stressed out and responsible for an entire country Mm -hmm. (laughs) and constantly threatened by the fairies. But then she is resourceful. She uses her great argument and the fairy queen agrees to take her via Pegasi. (laughs) She is able to meet the pirate king who is called the Pirate King because she wants to be. Mm -hmm. 
this person who is definitely doing things her own way is respected by those under her. Something that Margot hasn't experienced yeah. being the high queen and the patriarchal culture that Fillory has. And in those interactions, she still <laughs> advocates for herself. Mm -hmm. Like she has been always doing in the situations we've seen, at least in any sexual situations that she's talked about or been in. Because the Pirate King wants <laughs> some sexual encounter to be a part of this deal. Mm -hmm. To, you know, release the ship and the hostages and, and whatnot. But Margot's like, you just took over my boat, which tells me you're not one to pay attention to a safe word. Yes. <laughs> and she's she's always doing this. When Prince S came and was like, and we'll marry the Virgin Queen. And she's like, this person seems really shady on the idea of consent. Like, I'm not going to agree to marry him. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to go to his kingdom or whatever the circumstances. And so, yeah, she's always advocating for herself when it comes to her sexuality and her body being used without her wanting to be or um, her body being put in potentially unsafe situations at the same time i think that if it was a man pirate king putting that as a part of the deal i'm not sure that she's grown enough to not have <laughs> just let him have it in <laughs> the her most colorful insulting yes language but Gender politics have a role in how we interact in circumstances. And so here she's like, yeah, she definitely, I think it's interesting to see her clearly more comfortable interacting with this female leader mm -hmm. than the dick dryad, right? <laughs> it's just like, oh, you've insulted me by coming here yourself, not sending your high king. You know, she's just had to deal with these people over and over and over again. And here, this pirate king is treating her like a person, mm -hmm. treating her with respect, treating her as someone to make a deal with, not take advantage of. Yeah. And from those interactions she goes to find out more information about what these terms of this deal will be and doesn't just agree to them regardless of the cost. Yeah. Because Benedict says, if you don't agree, they'll kill us all. Even with that being the context, she goes and asks the Muntjack. Yeah. And I think... This is where we see her taking all of these different experiences of being silenced, marginalized, not taken seriously. Objectified. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't do that to somebody else. Yeah. Somebody else who is still in their quote-unquote possession, if that's how people would like to think about it. But she doesn't. She's going to ask them. She's not going to order the Muntjack. 
she is going to take the Munchak seriously. Mm-hmm. Even if they can't even communicate with each other. If she doesn't know if they can, she doesn't hear anything back mm-hmm. <laughs> from the Munchak. And even when, with her eye, that's another moment where she had the opportunity to be like, hey, I didn't steal my eye back. I mean, it literally was tick Pickwick's yeah. idea. It wouldn't even be lying to be like, ah, it was his idea and he did it. But she's like, no, they didn't do this. I did this. Like, she's taking responsibility because she agreed to the plan and she has a position of authority, right? Yeah. And then she decides she will not give her eye back to the fairy queen. She will crush it before she'll do that. Yeah. Fairy queen's like, hey, you know that you can't fix that. You can't heal that. Maybe magically they could have reattached it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But now, even if that was possible with magic or with fairy magic... That's gone, but she's like, no, nobody is going to use even one part of my body without my consent. Yeah. And, yeah, I just think that she's really brave, but not just brave, but compassionate. Mm -hmm. And doesn't just take the pain and frustration and anger that she has at being treated so badly and, like, use it only for herself or use it as an excuse to, you know, treat other people not well. But she instead does what it seems like no one probably has ever done before, which is try to extend agency to a completely different species that she doesn't understand and hasn't even interacted with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a Rubicon for Margot. This is a line in the sand that she refuses to cross. Mm-hmm. And Margot, we've seen, has made some bad choices. <laughs> some selfish choices. Yes. Uh, some immature choices. But, you know, the the way that this was laid out for her and the way, yeah, it connects to her own struggles, I think was so powerful that it also helped to center her as this is the kind of high queen I will be. This is the kind of ruler I will be. I will not be a ruler of my own body or of my subjects in a way that allows us to be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, I think that is just such a a fascinating and compelling journey that she's been on for seasons, Mm -hmm. but we see come to such an important point in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, I think she has one of the most interesting journeys of, of any of the characters. Agreed. But what about you? I had three POVs, so what's your one? I, I could have zero if you, that's what you'd prefer. No, I'm kidding. No, obviously, you had mentioned to me before this <laughs> that you were going to talk about Alice, and someone needs to talk about Alice. Absolutely, yeah. yeah this is such an important episode for her mm-hmm. as well. And this episode, I think, really cemented why she 
in her post-Niffin state is such a compelling character. Mm-hmm. And all of the ways that she is navigating being a new person. Yeah. And what that means for her is just really, really fascinating. The conversation she has with Quentin at the end of the episode, I think, helps put into perspective not only her actions and thoughts this episode, but her actions and thoughts since she's come back as a Niffin. She talks about how the Niffin is still a part of her, that she did these actions and many of these were monstrous, but she did them. She experienced them. She felt the desire to do them for monstrous reasons. And she can't just be the Alice that she was before. Mm-hmm. That this is part of her now. Quinton can't see that in her. Most people probably can't see that with her. I imagine that's another reason why she didn't go back to her parents. Because she already has a fraught relationship with them. And that's with the person who she was before. Mm-hmm. And as she's navigating what it means to be the person she is now, yeah, that would be a lot. Yeah. And so throughout the episode, you know, I think that many of her actions have this really interesting interplay with the Alice that we were introduced to in season one and an Alice that has been a Niffin. We see her have no compunction against using this torture device against Carol, against Quentin, against her parents. You know, she continually uses it without any kind of worry, except for when it might affect her dad's heart. And even then, she still uses it. Mm-hmm. I mean, she says sorry to the little kitten, but the fact that you're going for a second kitten after the other one exploded, that's when I would just be like, well... If I knew it was going to explode, I wouldn't have gotten it to begin with. But if I didn't know, I'd be so horrified. I'd just be like, well, I guess I'll die now. That's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to make a little kitten explode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, her relationship with Quentin, which she clearly still has affection for Quentin. You know, she, of course, has to be defensive when Quentin's acting all hurt about her saying that she couldn't just stay having sex with him and acting like everything was okay. You know, she has to explain like, yes, it was nice, but it also had these negative aspects to it. And it was also not healthy for me. And yeah, she talks about how, you know, he's not my boyfriend. She keeps yelling But she also doesn't want him dead. She's not just going to kill him in case he's the Lamprey still. Mm -hmm. So we see her struggling with that there. And then the last part that I thought was just a a really amazing performance was when she kills the Lamprey. Right, that expression. Yeah. As the lights come up and Mm -hmm. we see her watching those lights that she described, the Niffin killed his family because of the pretty lights. And we see her transfixed on these pretty lights. And we see her both smile and grimace Mm -hmm. at its death. And it is just, yeah, it's a different Alice than the first Alice we were introduced to. It's an Alice that has that Niffin aspect still inside of her and still a part of her. And she is still managing that internal tension 
But this episode really solidifies that this is not something that's temporary. This is a part of who she is in really dramatic and important ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it was season one, episode two, Alice, when Quentin was like, you know when you were a kid and you would use a magnifying glass to kill ants? And she's like, no, that's horrifying. That was... Oh, that's such a good call. Yeah. And to come back and have to not just face everything that you did, but feel both. Mm-hmm. Feel why you did it. Feel like it's not bad. At the same time, feel like it's bad and know it's bad, you know? Yeah. To have both of those things in you, yeah, it does seem like it would just be so difficult and she avoids you know what why is this lamprey after you you know she Mm -hmm. avoids the question she lies about it even when she said that she killed all of this lamprey's family she said there's nothing that i wouldn't have done for knowledge yeah and it's not until she's facing the lamprey that she finally admits why she did it yeah it wasn't about knowledge no because knowledge, at least, other people, if they thought that's horrifying, they could understand it. Yeah. They could be like, well, there's some value or virtue with knowledge and research and pursuing these things. But, oh no, I slowly tortured because they made pretty lights. You know, like, how can you tell someone that you know and how terrible too to know that that's one of the last things that your father knew about you yeah and he died because this creature was after you because of what you did for the frivolousness of lights yeah but then even in that scene i find it so interesting that she is staring at her mother. Mm-hmm. And her mother's expression, which obviously, as you mentioned, communicates so much of what she's going through. And Alice can only meet that gaze as Alice is herself trying to accept her own monstrousness. Mm-hmm. Right? She calls herself the monster in this episode. And she can't look away from that and how that impacts people how she took the lamprey's family and in many ways she's now taken stephanie's family Mm -hmm. and yeah it's just such a great unique character turn you know i've never seen another character in any medium who goes through something like this yeah the writers and performers are just making this such a powerful and nuanced and thankfully you know long-running arc not something that is here one week and resolve the next but like everything this show has long-lasting consequences and continues to be revisited and here i think is engaged with in the most profound ways so Mm -hmm. far yeah yeah it's a good show (laughs) It is a good show, and and Olivia Taylor Dudley does a really, really exceptional job at conveying so much 
like even that last expression she she gives her mother like to me it was now you'll finally hate me more than i hate myself yeah it's now you're the only family i have left but that's ruined too it's regret i think there's a part of it that's also now i've proven to be as awful as you've always made me feel Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah maybe we we both wish it would have been each other instead of daniel yeah yeah the losses of magic (laughs) the losses of magic well let's uh let's review that title yeah yeah I, I, I like it because obviously we know magic has been lost mm-hmm. but we see so many ways in which it's been lost and losses that have occurred because of the loss of magic from penny dying because of magic to that last battery of magic being wasted to obviously the murdering of these lampreys because as they lost their magic it did something that Niff and Alice enjoyed you know and and so yeah I think that we have a lot of different aspects that yeah fit with it yeah agreed I think that if you expected to come at this thinking about it as the loss of magic and how the loss of magic has influenced society making it the losses to show oh but there are specific losses that we're going to be revisiting in this episode yeah it it definitely makes a lot of sense and you know at, at this point i don't remember everything that happens in the show and in each season but seeing this title made me think i think i know what happens in this episode you know so yeah i think it's it's effective all right, well, I think that will wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we're going to be moving on to episode four, Be the Penny, where Penny makes a new friend. A.K.A. Brittany's favorite character no, in the show. No, It's an amusing character, but cannot be my favorite <laughs> character for many reasons. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We want to thank everyone who came out to our Zoom meetup last weekend. It was a ton of fun. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!